my guest today, Adam Caton Holland, is a stand-up comic who has appeared on Conan, The Late Late Show with James Corden, Comedy Central Presents, At Midnight, The Meltdown with Jonah and Kamel, Hidden America, and was named one of Esquire's 25 comics to watch, as well as one of 10 comics to watch by Variety. And along with his cohorts in The Grawlicks, he created, wrote, and starred in Those Who Can't, which aired for three seasons on True TV. He also released a series of comedy albums, and his writing has appeared all over the place from The Village Voice, Spin, New York Times, Esquire, The Atlantic, and more. His book, Tragedy Plus Time, reveals a deeply personal journey that Adam has taken, supporting his sister through mental illness that led devastatingly to suicide and moved him to re-examine his own life and then try to figure out how you move forward being on stage, doing what you love, especially when your job is to stand in front of a room of people or a screen with potentially millions of people watching and make them laugh. When you're dealing with your own stifling grief, we explore all of this along with the many experiences that have shaped him and built his career in today's conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I always drew cartoons and stuff. Um, like comic strips. I wanted yeah. to do that. And then when I got to high school, I had a really great teacher who was the English teacher, but also the, the newspaper guy. And so I got on newspaper staff and then he started letting us write humor stuff, onion knockoffs or Dave Letterman top 10 lists. Yeah. And once we started doing that, it was like, this, these are my people. I would sit in the back and write humor with friends. And we would start each newspaper class by breaking down the 
two Simpsons episodes we had watched the night before on reruns on right. Fox and then tell all those jokes and be like, okay, let's write some funny stuff. And then, yeah, once I started doing that at 15, it was over. That's amazing. Was it the uh, art, the express, like the artistic expression side that, that was jamming on you or was it more like the social commentary or just yes? Just yes. I think it was, I got off like anyone would on, on the coming out in print and yeah. everyone reading it and, you know, pay attention to me. Look at the funny thing I did. Of course I got off on that. But I definitely, when I was writing these top 10 lists or articles with my friends, it was, I think it was a high in that my brain liked working this way. I feel like it's like an engineer sits down and is like, I really want to take apart this toy truck I'm playing with. It was just kind of my brain was, felt like it was firing pretty well in a satisfying way to me when I was doing that. Did you have any sense, even at that age, that like, oh, this would be cool if I could actually in some way, shape or form do this moving forward? In, I don't in think so. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm, you know, make it sound like I was born in the fifties, but I feel like in the late nineties, there wasn't social media. Yeah. My friends and I were still blown away when we learned how to burn CDs. I mean, that was huge. So, so access to making things on a high level wasn't as, you know, it was hard to film edit. It was, it, all those things didn't seem achievable. It felt like something done far away in Hollywood. I knew I liked it and I thought maybe someday, but it definitely didn't. I think now it's kind of like, there's this mindset that you can make a movie on your iPhone and right. it could get to cans or something. It wasn't like that for us. It still felt very daunting to me. Yeah. But I mean, even, even the idea of a comic strip, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm guessing also if you were creating these things, you were also I mean, probably reading them and devouring them. Oh, for sure. Basis. Calvin and Hobbes. Right. Yeah. And when you look at those, on the one hand, like, they're a very small number of strips, but on the other hand, a lot of the ones that have been out there have been out there forever. True. And you got it like you're imagining, like, okay, so somebody's like, this is sustainable enough so that somebody's been able to actually make this their jam for sometimes decades. Yeah. No. And, you know, I guess I, I am exaggerating a little bit because I remember seeing the movie Clerks, which yeah. I don't love as much as I did. But when I saw it at 15 and it's this black and white film that's very dialogue driven. And I remember reading it costs $30,000 or something like that. I, I That opened my head up to people who didn't have access could still make things that mm. broke through. So you ended up going, you said you went to Wesleyan. Yeah. Did you have any sense for what you want to do there when you showed up? I became, I was a film major. All right. And so that was part of the reason I went there. They got a real good film department and I wanted to see what that was about. But going through the film department made me realize that I was bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wrote scripts and stuff and that was valuable. You know, when I got to Wesleyan as well, one of the first things I did is I started writing a humor paper and satire. And, and that always seemed to, I would just do that on my own, not even for class. And I'd put it out and that was definitely humor. It was, again, it was what I was angling towards clumsily. And then I kept doing that for years until I found stand-up. I mean, and, and I know Wesleyan for you was not just a time of finding like channels of expression, but also a time where it sounds like maybe the, for the first time in a really meaningful way, Darkness really starts to kind of like touch down in your psyche. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I got super depressed and eventually pretty suicidal at Wesleyan. And I don't, it was looking back, it's a lot to do with emotional immaturity, I think. But, you know, also my family's got this mental illness in our blood. And I think I was tasting it a little bit, the closest I ever came anyway. But yeah, you know, you get to a school like that. In order to get to a school like that, you kind of got to be a hot shot at your school. 
So, you know, a typical big fish, little pond. Then I get to Wesleyan, Lin-Manuel Miranda's in my class. No one's showering me with praise anymore. No one cares. And it's these very peacoat wearing Manhattanite kids that are like impressive to me. And I just didn't, you know, I, I didn't make the newspaper. I got cut from the soccer team. I had these grandiose notions of what I should be doing as an 18-year-old that I wasn't living up to. And, and rather than just sort of having the maturity to realize, hey, these are bumps on the road. You'll get through it. There's many paths. This is what college is, man. This is what growing up is. I just kind of sunk and I didn't talk about it to people and started, you know, drinking and doing a lot of drugs. And it just was a snake devouring its tail. And I mean, that was the first two years of college was getting darker and darker and darker and vandalizing all the time, breaking stuff, just an angry little entitled kid howling at the moon. And then I eventually got caught and almost got expelled. And that was sort of a wake up call is like, Hey, you're about to blow all this. And that sort of helped yeah. uh, pull me out of it. A, a very clear line of like, they might take this all away. Did, did you have, before that happened, did you have a sense for sort of like how much you were spinning out of control? Or was that the moment where you're like, Oh, this is actually different than what I thought. This is not the normal, like freaking out that most you know, like people have in the first year or two of college and just trying to figure out which way is up. Yeah. I don't know. Because again, I feel like only now I don't, at 39, can I say this is a normal freak out of you yeah. know, any of identity that at the time it wasn't, I didn't know that. I didn't have the distance to know that, but it, that, you know, there was one time where I had just for three days partied an insane amount and done an insane amount of drugs. And I was asleep in my dorm room freshman year and got up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the day. It's probably Sunday at four. I'm still sleeping. And I just passed out in the hall and everybody was freaking out and wanted to take me to detox. And I was like, I'm fine. And I went to the bathroom, passed out again. And it was just a really like, clearly this is a warning sign thing, but I was able to convince everybody not to do anything and sleep it off. <laughs> yeah. Did your, um, cause you're across the country from your family at that point also, did they have any sense of what was going on? My older sister, Anna was actually at Wesley and I okay. followed her there. She's, but I, she's like two years older. Two years older. Right, yeah. So when I was a freshman, she was a junior, but I kept it from her pretty good. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I kept it all from her pretty well. And I didn't, I didn't, I was embarrassed by how I was doing and I didn't want her to see me doing that poorly. And I certainly didn't want my parents to see me. So even though I have this lovely family, Anna would have fallen over herself to come help me out in whatever way, or invited me over to hang out with her friend. You know, she would have, and my parents would have done anything. I, but I had this strange pride and I didn't want to let on. I kept it all secret, uh, but until it exploded out of me. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing how much we don't want to share what's going on in our own children. You want to have somebody who's so close to you who would in a heartbeat step in and say like, huh, I'm here. Let's, let's do it. Let's figure this out together. I yeah. Like, I think there's so much pride tied up in it. There's so much foolish um, pride. Right. And, and also this sense of like shame that you don't like, well, if, if somebody really close to me knows that's, that's big. Yeah, exactly. And I, I don't know. I was carving out. I also think my brain was, spinning out a little bit. I was writing all sorts of dark stuff and I, 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 it was a two pronged fear of what I was becoming and trying to keep away from people. Dark stuff. How I would write just dark, just journal furious entries and write weird poems. And, you know, it sounds all cliche now, but it was just dark. And I felt, uh, like it was never going to get better. Mm. Do you, were you a journaler? 
I was at the time. Do you still have those journals? Yeah, they're they're weird. Do you ever like look back at them and reflect? Sort on them? of. It's funny. I have them. I have a on my little bedside table. I have all the journals, which then turned into joke books. I just yeah. kept all of them. And my son always goes and rifles through them. He's one years old, and he's always tearing through that stuff because it's on his ground level. And I'm kind of like, at what point should I remove these? I don't want him reading <laughs> this stuff. But he's he's far from reading. I mean, it's so interesting, I think, to reflect on that. I'm not a journaler, and so many times I wish that I was at certain moments yeah. just so I could a decade, two decades go back and actually recall like in real time, even the good stuff and the bad stuff. Sure. It helped. I, you know, I wrote this book and it helped a little bit to yeah. tap into that mindset for sure. But no, I haven't done it for years. Now it's kind of, I don't have time, yeah. <laughs> especially with a kid. And yeah, I wish I did it, but cause you, you know, you read these artists and they journal for years and it's fascinating to have that stuff, but I don't know. Yeah. I let go of it. <laughs> <laughs> fodder for something else down yeah, the road yeah. maybe i guess you end up um sort of like halfway through you hit this moment where it's sort of like a moment of reckoning almost get expelled then end up bouncing to spain it sounds like for yeah it's like such a i feel like such a cliche but I, it's like i went to i feel like that's part of the reason the school let me back was because it's very funny that because anna's a lawyer yeah. now and whereas i was this fuck up sophomore she was this stellar senior on all these boards with deans and, you know, top of the class, just a really well-respected kid and bound to be an attorney someday. So she, when it hit the fan and they were going to kick me out of the school, she slid in and was my counsel the entire time. She was so good and so supportive and so smart. And so she kind of would spin it in certain ways. And, you know, basically she was this as good as being like, this is the time for a school like Wesleyan to show what they're made of. Do they turn their back on a kid when he's down and hurting or do they accept him and get him the help that he needs and turn him into a Wesleyan man? And it's just like, well, I guess we do that. And so I was going away. It was near the summer of my sophomore year. So I'd be gone for the whole summer. And then I was going to study abroad for the next semester. So ostensibly it's eight, nine months that I won't be right. physically back on this campus. And so, you know, in that eight, nine months, they had me do therapy and, community service and things like that. So I think that was part of like, okay, maybe this asshole can grow up a little bit by the time he sets foot on campus again. Yeah. But and, and it sounds like to a certain extent it, it, it worked. It did. <laughs> it did. I think uh, I had spent so much time navel gazing right. and being dark and depressed and which is no one really points out is very selfish. It's me, 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 me. I'm sad. I'm bad. I'm a terrible person, but it's all me. Not a lot of you, you, you when you're terribly depressed. And I think just going to a beautiful place like Spain and Madrid and there's beautiful women and the different people. And it was like, oh, yeah, the world. Your problems are not your dorm room and you. Like, it's way bigger than this. And and it, that did honestly occur to me and kind of was a great period for me and opened my brain up a little bit. Yeah, it's funny. I, th I think um, college experiences can be also – can actually – you can really amplify that sense of like this 20 acre existence is, is the world. And yeah. Like, and I, and like, that is the full container of, of all the experience of the world. And I'm like this person who's operating in it. And it's so becomes so insular. I, I, I went to law school and practice law for a short uh -huh. amount of time. And I remember the first year of law school with like, which is known as just kind of wrecking you. It was, there was a moment where like, it was all consuming. It was in the middle of New York city but nothing existed outside of this bubble of, of kind of crushing pressure and stress. Yeah. 
And you couldn't imagine, like you didn't even have the bandwidth to think about anything outside of that. Yeah. yeah. And meanwhile, 10 di- miles down the road, there's another pe- group of people who feel the exact same way. Right. I wrote it. I was on a TV show and my friends and I wrote it and we had three seasons and there, there'd be the pressure of the network and this sky is falling for this reason today. And I remember we'd be writing it in Hollywood and, I, and I, we would say, Hey, there's down the hall. There's another show having the exact same problems. Like it's, it's bigger than us. Let's breathe. It's okay. It's not just this entire little microcosm. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest benefits of getting out of that ecosystem or of travel in this case, like entirely totally. leaving the country. Like, Oh, there's, you know, like, yeah, this sucks. There's this microcosm and it's not my world and it's not the world. Totally. Like the, the universe of possibilities and, and interactions is so much bigger. It's like I, a reset. I firmly believe it's a lot of pressure to put on an 18-year-old kid to be like, where do you, and you were, t- we were talking about your daughter in college, where do you want to go? What, how do you want to define yourself for the next four years? It, some kids nail it. But some, it's hard. And you're 18. And yes, you're an adult, but we all know that 18 is still a pretty young kid. So it's, it's a lot. You know, if I, for me personally, I think I was a little bit immature in certain ways, clearly. So I, I feel like it would have benefited me to take a year off and travel or work at Subway and learn how lucky you are to go to a school like this and not waste the first two years just tearing my brain apart. You eventually, you, you graduate Wesleyan, degree in film, I guess. Yes. When you leave there, are, are you like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm heading straight into film or-, or No, not you, at all. I had okay. no idea. You're basically like, I checked that box, now what? <laughs> totally. And everyone was going to New York or LA, yeah. everyone. And I watched people in my film department who were so much better at it than me and just it seemed to enjoy it more than me that I was like, I don't think I want to do this. I think I want to write. I think I want to do funny things, but I don't know what that means at all. So I moved back to Denver for a little while. And then I moved back to Spain with a friend for two friends for eight months, just kind of delaying things. And then I was decided I should make, I should do something. So I remember I wrote a Simpsons script and I, I tried to get that into the right hands. Nothing ever came of it. And in my head, I was thought comedy, okay, comedy is second city in Chicago. That's what happens. You go to second city and you get on Saturday night live. So I, Anna was in law school at Chicago. I followed her again. She let me crash on her floor for six, seven months and I took classes at Second City. What, what I mean, what what flip, what switch flipped even that made you say comedy? I think it was, you know, I graduated college. I moved to Spain again, fucking around, delaying adulthood. And after six months of that, I was trying to teach English, but you can't teach English without a, a visa. Can't get a visa without a job. It's catch 22. So I just blew my money and had a great time. But I was also, you know, I was the kid who felt the pressure of not doing well enough at college that I was able to tailspin. At 22, I've, I'm feeling the pressure of what are you doing? You're wasting your time. You're not starting your life. So I think I just, I don't know. I wrote that Simpsons script and I was like, maybe I'm good at this. And it was, I, it was never a light switch flipping. It was more just comedy is, is it, Yeah. whatever that means, the vague concept of comedy. Right. Yeah. I mean, which is interesting too, because here. Still pretty much a kid at that point. Yeah. Coming from a family where your mom's a journalist, your dad's a civil rights lawyer and crusader. You go to Wesleyan, this amazing institution, and you come out and you're like, comedy. <laughs> yeah, weird, right? <laughs> it's like, I don't know if anyone But I mean, was... also, I mean, I'm curious what, in, the, in like the context of the family dynamic and the values and what you're, quote, supposed to do with your life. Right. When you're like, ah, mom, dad, sis, like this, I think this is my jam. How does that actually land? Well, you know- 
the good thing about hippie parents is there wasn't a lot of pressure to obviously that my dad's got an impressive field. My mom was an impressive journalist, but there was never, Hey, you need to do this or that. It was just support all the way. Mm. So, and I was very funny with my little sister in our family. We were, we, you know, Anna's funny, but she's a little older and more independent. And Lydia and I would kind of be more of a two man shtick. So I don't think it was a surprise to my parents because at home we were very funny and we were the ones that would make the whole family laugh. So I think they, you know, and, and then in high school I had written funny stuff and right. I had written the humor paper and they were clearly like, well, Adam does this. He tries to put out comedic content. It wasn't a total curveball. Yeah. So you could kind of look at the dots already starting to yeah, like piece totally. themselves together. You, so you spend time in Second City in Chicago, but then bounce back to, to Denver yeah, fairly so, soon after that. So while I'm doing that in Second City in Chicago, my buddy who is in Denver, he sent me an article. Uh, there's a newspaper here, The Westward. It's the Alt Weekly, owned by Village Voice Media. They're all in the same conglomerate. Yeah. But, you know, the indie, indie rag from my town was doing a contest. And I think the subject was, you know, Denver, why I love her was the subject. So in Chicago, I just wrote this heartfelt screed and it, it won their contest. And the editor wrote me, she's like, are you in Denver? Do you want to write more? Can you, you want to freelance? And I wasn't liking the second city classes. And that seemed like the biggest lead I had. So I moved back to Denver, started substitute teaching to pay the bills, freelancing for this newspaper. And then I started doing stand-up comedy at mics, at open mics around town. So I think I was kind of flirting with it in Chicago. I was doing improv, right. sketch writing, not liking any of them. But I remember going to open mics in Chicago mm -hmm. and watching and just sitting in the back and watching, but not participating. And so then I got back to Denver and I just was like, you need to start doing stand-up comedy. And I did. <laughs> and I haven't stopped since. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. 
But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's starter pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping as a special offer for our listeners new customers get five dollars off a lumi starter pack with the code goodlife at lumideodorant.com don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness that equates to over 40 percent off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code goodlife Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365 day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. I mean, it seems like the, there are really two threads that are running through this, right? One is the interest in comedy, but also it's it's writing. Like, yeah. You also want to be on the side of of creating right. the stuff underneath it, whether it was journalism or writing for the paper or like yeah. writing for like the humorous columns. It's not, it's, it's. It's not just being on a stage in front of people. It's also, it's like the craft of creating well, underneath that. Yeah, I think you're right. And and truthfully, there was never the desire to be on stage in front of people. Oh, no it kidding. was always behind the scenes, write, 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 write a Simpson script, be the writer. And then once I started going to open mics and seeing the true pathetic nature of stand-up <laughs> comedy, you know, I thought stand-up comedy was this craft anointed by gods. Like the, Hollywood just says, you're a comic to the guy on Johnny Carson's couch. I didn't think regular people were stand-ups. It just seemed strange to me. And then going to open mics and learning that truly unfunny people are trying to do this gave me the confidence to be like, you're better than those guys. Write stuff down, try it. And and so that I did. And it was, it was, you know, that's when I got the shot in the arm and learned, oh, I like being on stage too. Yeah. It was, but it was never desperate child doing skits in the living room like look at me it was more playing around with my sister my parents and i thought we were funny but writing 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 do you remember your your very first time on stage 100 percent. yeah what was, what was like it's at the lion's lair it's this dive bar in denver like really dive bar in denver and i had gone the week before and watched and then i wrote stuff and i remember i memorized it and rehearsed it in the mirror memorized it and i no hyperbole i got on stage blacked out, 
got off stage and they were like, that was really good. Hey, this guy's funny. All right. So blacked out and it's basically and I, just froze. Yeah. I'm sh- well, I don't remember any uh, of it. Got it, got it. I'm sure I went into the routine that I had memorized backwards and forwards, but I don't recall telling it. It was that I blacked out. So I remember getting on stage and getting off and the MC is like, good stuff, man. Shaking my hand. And I was like, okay, I guess it went well. So to this day, you, you have no recall of like that moment. Truly, on truly. I don't recall like getting a laugh and feeling a dopamine rush. None of it. I just remember getting off and being told it was funny. And the week before I had watched as new guys tried and you know, it's this little club. And so a new person would try not do well. And the funnier comics who are more established, the MC and a few other guys you could tell have been doing it a while would sort of, sort of shun that guy, not just politely, but you know, no thanks, man. And then if someone got up there and did well, you'd see them sort of be like, Hey, want a drink? And kind of welcome. It was like the price of entry into this club is laughter. If you don't get it, you're not in this club. And so after that, so I had seen that social scene play out the week before and I got off stage not remembering what I did, but being told I did well. And I was sort of brought into the club. And then they were like, you should sign up at the downtown comedy club. It takes two months to get on. Sign up now. By then you'll be ready. You know, that type of stuff. So Was there much of – because I guess you kind of fall under this like rough umbrella, uh, like quote, alt comedy. Yeah, I'll take um, it. Was, I like that because it means it – means, thoughtful yeah and <laughs> it's, it's like more story driven more social com- commentary um was there you know new york is certainly and la have been known for having like a big alt comedy scene for a while did that scene exist in denver when you were doing this definitely not definitely not and i think now about the time i wasted at college being depressed and i was like you should have just been in new york you should have been 90 miles away watching the rise of the alt comedy scene and getting into it but you know, we have our paths. Um, no, Denver had nothing like that. Denver was pretty small. And there's this club called the Comedy Works, which is one of the best in the country. So we had that. There's a great comedy club, but it's still a club. And a lot of the alt comedy doesn't really happen in the clubs per se. Now it's kind of changed. Now it's one's bled into the other, but especially at that time. So truthfully, I got into comedy really passionately, studied the scene I got in a, a CD, I started working at that newspaper and I remember the music editor came up to me one day and he's like, here's a comedy CD I got, you want it? Because he knew I was doing comedy. And it was a double disc CD of this show called Invite Them Up, which was, if you know all comedy, it's it was a very influential New York show that Eugene Merman did and you know, Mike Birbiglia came right. out of there and Tig Notaro and Michael Showalter and a lot of the guys from the state. It was just very influential alt comedy. And I had never heard anything like that. It was, I, you know, it's like I'd been listening to only Dave Matthews or something. And, and someone's like, here's a pavement CD. And I was like, whoa, okay, I like this. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, I want to do that here. I want to emulate it. So my friends and I started doing alt comedy and running cool, weird shows at non-traditional venues, which was, you know, is a double advantage for us. We could do interesting things, but also we, we got more stage time. We've got to figure out how to be funnier. So yeah, we started doing that. And now Denver's got a pretty healthy, thriving all yeah. comedy scene. And yeah, we're definitely kind of the grandfathers. Right. Of that. Cause it sounds like you kind of had to build it to, from the ground up to a certain extent. Sure. And there's been so many people that contributed and did yeah, other yeah, stuff, yeah. but, but definitely it was, um, it was new when we were doing it. 
And I remember I went to invite them up. I took a pilgrimage and watched. And as soon as I could, I started going to New York to try to get on those shows. And I wasn't, you know, I'm not dumb. <laughs> I know that Denver, no one's trying to come scout you to make you famous. So as soon as I could, I started taking trips out to New York and LA to try to get on the coolest shows I could. And I'd befriend those cool comics when they came through Denver. And then they'd put me on their stages when I went to those towns. So quickly it started, I started realizing the picture was way bigger than Denver while sort of trying to build something in Denver. And yet you decided to still like, this is still your home base to this day. Yeah. A hundred percent. It is. But you know, I tr- I'm on planes yeah. three times a month. Right. But yes, definitely. I've tried to make it work from here and that's that's tied into a lot to mental health and being happier here and being yeah. around my family and stuff. Yeah. Which is so important. What happens because you're still, so you're doing this largely at night, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're still working other jobs to pay the bills. Well, well, you know, I got hired by the newspaper, so I became a full-time right. staff writer. So I'm a full-time writer. Right. So you're like a paper. journalist yeah. at the paper. Yeah. This is what's happening on the side. What happened? Like what happens that makes you say, okay, I'm all in on comedy. Laid off from the newspaper. Uh. <laughs> Five years later, you know, newspapers, I don't know if you know, they're not doing great. And I was clearly, they, the newspaper Westward was really nice because the first cover story I wrote was about stand-up comedy. It's called iComic. And it was just your typical me checking out the scene of comedy while writing about me doing comedy. So from that moment on, my editor was like, well, you've just said you're this funny guy in the pages. Would you, you should prove it. And she gave me a column. And so I got to write a weekly humor column. So I was already the funny guy. And I think they kind of liked that I was doing stand-up as well. It didn't hurt. You know, my right. intro would be like, this guy's a writer for Westward every time. They liked that. It, 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 they both fed each other. For example, Tuesday night was our Saturday night. There was the new talent night at Comedy Works. And then my friend ran an open mic that was the most popular one. Started at 11, went till 2. So I'd come in Wednesday hungover at noon and my editor never gave me any shit about it. They understood. But so, yeah, I got laid off and I had started doing college gigs the year before, which pay very well. Mm. And so I kind of realized I was like, if I can string together 18 college gigs, I'll be making as much as I made at the newspaper. So I could see there was a pass. So started hitting college gigs really hard. And, but yes, getting laid off was the impetus I needed to be like, all right, it's now or never you're a full-time comic or you're not. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a, nothing like that shove that basically Dude. says, this door is closed. Like, you didn't ask for it to be closed, it was closed, and now this thing that you had, like, partially open, you got to go all Yeah, in. I mean, it was a shock. I didn't see it coming. Uh, it was, like, it was terrible, and I was really upset about it, but I'm so happy it happened. It was definitely the push I needed. How quickly, I mean, you said you sort of, like, went all in on the college circuit. How quickly were you sort of like back to a place where you're like, yeah, I'm doing okay purely with comedy? Uh, you mean financially? Yeah. Just like, I mean, it was tough, but I don't recall having to borrow money, but I do, I am lucky enough that I know my parents are never gonna let me starve. So I would have been okay. But I think, you know, I just kind of cut the fat on everything and lived pretty lean for a while. But yeah, I think within about a year, I had managed to make what I was making at the paper, which you know, 25,000 bucks or something like that. It wasn't a ton of money, but it was enough to live in Denver at that time. Yeah. For and, sure. And this is what you're in your late twenties at that point. Or? Yeah. Like 2008, 2009. Right. Yeah. From there you kind of go to, I mean, it sounds like it just starts to build and build and build and yeah. build. You end up on national stages, on tours being featured. And then um, you end up on TV. 
mm-hmm. on some of the big evening shows. Yeah, I'm always curious. Like there was a day or a time when those shows, you know, you show up on there and you're kind of minted. Yeah, I mean, it's the Carson phenomenon. Is that still no. a thing? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wish. No, it used to because there's so many now. Yeah. It doesn't hold the influence that that had. It used to be Johnny Carson. You get your five minute late night spot, four and a half minute late night spot. And then if you do well, I mean, everybody would watch that show. So everyone the next day sees you. But if you got invited to the couch, that was sort of the king-making thing. If Johnny liked you enough to bring you over to the couch to let you shine comedically with him for two minutes at the end of the show, that was like your, your royalty now. And that's, you know, the next day your life would literally change. It'd be like, you know, a, a musician signing that contract in 1991. It was a, oh, man – next day you're famous but no it's not like that anymore <laughs> yeah is it do you feel like there's is there anything in the world of comedy that's like that anymore is it like um i mean honestly i think a netflix special currently yeah. does that because it just gets eyes on you in a way that were never there before and that's the power of netflix but you know even that's changing amazon's putting out specials now so it, it's not it's not as big a phenomenon so and to get to that netflix special Odds are most comedy nerds knew about you anyway. Yeah. You know? No, that makes a lot of sense. So you're building the career, also writing a lot of stuff, but but now just for yourself. And But your Jones for media also never quite goes away for film, for TV, sure. for... When does that start to... Like, as you're sort of like on planes, trains, and automobiles, performing on stage, writing your own stuff, when does the scripting and the TV start to show up again? Or was that always a through line? Uh, it, you know, after it's hard enough to learn how to do stand up because yeah. it's a hard craft and you get, you suck at it for a while. So I, I was doing that, but I was also such a student of the game and I love, love comedy. And I grew up on watching sketch stuff, Mr. Show, the state. I love that stuff. And I, always wanted to do that as well. So as soon as I could find collaborators to work with, to film sketches, we started doing that uh, early, you know, two, three years into comedy, we started making sketches and pointing cameras at each other and trying to figure it out. And then I don't know, maybe 2009, 10, I was doing a show with these two guys, Ben Roy, Andrew Overdahl. We still do it. It's called the Grawlix. Our trio became a TV show, those who can't, which we had for three years. But we teamed up with these two filmmakers who reached, we reached out to them because we had seen some of their stuff. And Denver was a small enough town at the time. They're like, oh, we know who you are. We, we love your stuff. And so they started working with us and we did a web series, but the production quality was way higher and they made us look good. And we weren't just sort of getting together and be like, so what do you want to film today? We'd come with scripts that we wrote and it was just way more organized. And that web series was definitely our first sort of professional push to like, I would like to do this. And uh, yeah, that was 2009, 10 type of thing. So your career is kind of like building. It's doing really, really nicely. At the same time, on a personal level, especially in your family, and I guess looking back, you can kind of now see like there there was sort of like shared darkness and, and probably even that's passed on through generations. But your sister starts, your younger sister yeah. this time starts to really struggle. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, you know, I've had to think of the timeline because I've written about it and studied it, but it all blurred together at the yeah. time. But yeah, she started, she uh, went to Colorado College and she was, which is an hour south of Denver. And 
lived there afterwards, stayed there for, stayed on, worked at a, uh, all breed animal rescue and was finding her little world down there. But then I came down there to do a show one time in Colorado Springs, a comedy show. And she knew I was doing comedy, but I don't think she realized I'd gotten good at it or decent anyway. And she came to the show and I just watched the comedy nerd light bulb go off in her head. Mm. And she was already like this punk rocker chick, just indie rock, loved music. I could see, and in that moment, I mean, she transitioned from like obsessive music fan to obsessive comedy fan pretty quickly. And so after the show, she was like, she wanted to know everything about what I was doing and how I thought of the jokes on stage, why I did them in this order. And you, and she asked, she's like, she was thinking about moving to Denver anyway. And she said, if I move back to Denver, can I help you with your stuff? You know? And I said, of course. And so she moved home and she became integral. These shows that we were running were pretty ambitious. <laughs> you know, we would have sketches and we would do live act out things and we would do weird audience plants and musical cues. So, you know, she took over and ran all the tech, made all the flyers, worked the door. So she became a part of my comedy scene. Our friends were all the same. And then as this is all going on, she just started to have, she had a couple breakdowns and it started to become clear that Lydia, you know, mental health was way off. Yeah. How was that actually, how was that showing up in a way that you became aware of? Well, you know, I didn't realize this till this conversation, but just like me, she kept it quiet for a long time. She worked as a paralegal at my dad's office with my sister and my dad. And, you know, one day she just came in and broke down and confessed to my, to my dad that she's not sleeping. She can't turn her brain off. She's a big reader. And she was saying that she couldn't read the words on the page because she would scan the letters forwards and backwards obsessively. She could, she always, her brain was very interesting. As a kid, she could say things backwards like that. She wasn't dyslexic, mm. but if she could spell it, if you could say, Lydia, say, I went to the grocery store backwards. She would spit it out backwards. It was a parlor trick. It was amazing. And so she came in and said, I can't read words on the page because I scan them obsessively forwards and backwards so bad that an hour passes. I haven't read a sentence. And, and that was, you know, this wake up call. And we were like, well, what is this? And I was out of the country at the time, but I remember my mom texted me and told me all about it. And I was like, oh, I, I can remember just being like, this isn't good. And my dad's sister suffered from mental illness. And, you know, we were all hands on deck and she started going to therapists. And there was never any, the sad story of my family is there's nothing we could have done better. We were all, you know, what can we do? How can we help you? Thank you for telling us. This is great. You told us. Let's get you to the right help. Let's get you to the right therapist. If they're not right, we'll find the next one from that day forward. But it just kept getting worse. And what was frustrating was that it was never consistent. It wasn't this, that was the day. And then it started going downhill from there. It would go up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. Lydia would be great for weeks on end. Then Lydia would have a crisis. Great for weeks on end again, crisis. And so... In that time, going through it, living it as a family, all you want to see are the weeks on end where she's doing good because you want it to her to do good. So it's hard to sort of understand until the worst happens how bad those spikes actually were and how much she must have been hiding from us during those periods that we perceived as good. Or So yeah, it got, it got ugly. Yeah. And we, when you say it got ugly, I mean, it, it gets ugly in terms of her daily existence and, and 
her interaction with everyone and with you, eventually she ends up taking her own life. Yeah. Yeah. She took her own life in 2012 and I found her and it was as fucked up as that sounds. And it caused me enormous emotional problems and that it took me a long time to recognize. And I had to do a lot of therapy and work to sort of get back to able to function. And the weird thing is meanwhile, comedy just kept going and these great career opportunities. I mean, literally there's a thing in comedy called the, the just for laughs comedy festival. It's in Montreal. It's the biggest comedy festival in the world. And every year they do a thing where they pick new faces and that, and I've likened it to being drafted into the NFL. It's like, welcome to the big leagues kid. And I think they do 18, 20 a year from all over Canada and the U S. And so in 2012, I was a new face. It's a big deal. You, I auditioned three times before I didn't get it. 2012, I got it. Went to Canada, did great, crushed it, got an agent, got a manager. Lydia and I are texting. She's geeking out. She's so proud of me. She's, could, this is, you know, she wants to know every detail. I come home from Montreal. I, the next day, she killed herself. So what do you do with that? <laughs> Suddenly, the this career and all these, you know, we talk about these insular worlds of college and law school, and a TV show. I thought comedy is my world. And then Lydia did that. Her mental illness got that bad that you're like, oh, I don't care at all. This world doesn't matter. I don't care at all. And I certainly don't feel funny. And that's been my life ever since. <laughs> so yeah, you know, two weeks later, uh, I went to LA, my parents, I didn't want to go, but there's a, you know, you create this buzz for yourself. The whole industry is kind of like, hey, who's the new kid? Let's get him a meeting. And Lydia had wanted it so bad for so long that my parents didn't want me to torpedo things. So everyone's pushed me to go. And I went and I wound up selling a TV show that my friends and I had written the script for, those who can't. And so suddenly the biggest career win I ever got is two weeks after my entire life exploding. And so that's kind of like, okay, here we go. This is the new existence. Just the notion, like the entire notion of on the one hand, grappling with this profound loss. All you want to do is you know, essentially curl up in the corner of a room. And, and, and at the same time, not only do you have to be forward facing to earn a living, but you're being paid to be funny right. to earn a living. Right. Which is, on the one hand, I almost wonder whether like it's brutally hard at that moment in time. And on at the same time, you being forced to, to access something which reframes so much of just what happens, um, suffering in all parts of life to find what's lighter in it in any way was helpful to you or, or, or not so much. Well, truthfully, I, I, you know, I stopped doing standup because I, I, I did maybe a couple of shows here and there, but I think for about six months, I just yeah. didn't. And I remember being so, nervous about that. I was like, you just became a new face. Like what, this is, you, and you're going to like stop right now. What are you doing? And I, but then I couldn't do it. And then we sold the show and that was actually the lifesaver because we had to make a pilot for the show. And as a show that me and my two friends wrote 
about bad teachers at a failing high school. It has nothing to do, you know, stand up is, is you, here's my story. It's, and even if you are telling a dick joke, there's a part of you in it and you're supposed to talk about your experience on stage. I wasn't going to talk about this. I was living it. I didn't have any perspective. I wasn't, and it would have been weird to get up on stage immediately and be like, my little sister took her own life. Like, here's, let's talk. It's just, I didn't have the maturity as an artist to pull that off. I didn't have the distance or, or, or healing to talk about it, but making a TV show where I could just be goofy and play a character and create a world that had nothing to do with this world was something that I quite enjoyed. But we, we filmed the pilot, took a week and it was the best. I was nervous if I could do it, but then I got to set and my friends and I laughed and it was like our baby. There was no network oversight. They let us film it in Denver. No one even came to set. They just gave us money and let us do it. It was a dream come true. And that was the best. I was like, this is funny. I enjoy this. I could do this. And then we wrapped production and, you know, there's a year before we figured out whether, what our fate was. So that was like snap back to reality. And that got real ugly. That's when I started to bottom out. Yeah. I took a, my agent got me a club gig in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'd never headlined clubs. It was my first Adams headlining club. And at that point, Lydia died in July. This was in December. So it had been half a year. And I thought, even though I haven't been doing comedy, I was like, go play the hits. Who cares if your heart's not in it? I didn't want word to get out that Adam Kate and Holland was not emotionally well enough to do comedy work. And so I felt like I had to take the gig and I went and it was terrible. And I had like a breakdown and I got suicidal and and kind of really bottomed out. And then I, that's when I realized that I was not doing well at all. And I guess I could kind of um, trick myself into thinking I was doing okay. But I, that's when I realized I wasn't doing well. Yeah. Yeah. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I know um, you explored a whole bunch of different types of therapy. I guess it was right around then. Yeah. So you're like, okay, so I started going to therapy I'm not just going to work my way through this. <laughs> well, I started going to therapy immediately and okay. so did all my family. I mean, we're smart people. We know yeah. how devastated we are. But it takes a while to figure out <laughs> your proper path, especially with something like this. And so I hadn't found anything that was working. I yeah. was just kind of like going through the steps of telling a therapist that, who I didn't even like or – or feel like was helping just going every week because that's what you should do, I suppose, but it wasn't getting me anywhere. Yeah. I mean, the, um, filming the TV show, it sounds like it, it served a certain purpose for you kind of like completely it required, it demanded so much of your focus away from that and doing something you truly loved. It reminds you that you actually can laugh again to totally. a certain extent. But like you said, you know, it's a window in time that ends <laughs> and then and, and I think so many of us, when we, when you experience something, some profound loss or trauma, and there is something, whether it's a passion or a hobby or an interest or work that you just, it's all consuming and you love it. You just pour yourself into it. Sometimes that's just an ongoing thing that distracts you. And sometimes it's good, but sometimes it also, it takes you away from you actually doing the work to, to, to figure out like how to somehow be okay for the rest of your life. If you, if in fact you can do that. It's um, finite. Yeah. And your pain and suffering is infinite. Right. So it's not, <laughs> at some point, the pain's going to outlast yeah. that. I mean, it's fascinating because you turn to something I've been so curious about for years, but yeah. I've never experienced, which sounds like really was maybe the most effective thing in helping you sort of like cross that bridge, which is EMDR. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about what this is. And, and probably a lot of our listeners have no idea what this yeah. is too. Yeah. I've, I've become a huge advocate of it. Yeah. It's, um, it's, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. But it's, it's been around for a while. You think it's like this new agey whatever, but it's been around for, I don't know, 40 years. And it's a treatment that people use to, to work through PTSD a lot. And I've become, like I said, this advocate for it, and I've spoken about it and stuff. And I've talked to a lot of people who've done it, some with great success, some with without. So I like any therapy, I think it's about the strength of your practitioner and finding the person that works for you. Anyway, I I went to my own regular doctor, and he's like, you have PTSD, is basically what he said. And he asked me if I was open to this EMDR. I'd never heard of it. He sent me to this woman who I later found out was you know a, a world-renowned leader in the field, thankfully. And honestly, how it works is they put these pulsers in your hand that tick-tock back and forth. They're like electronic. They don't make a sound, but they pulsate back and forth. You close your eyes, and in that way, your eyes instinctually follow that movement, simulating REM, which is what we do when we deep sleep, and apparently how the brain processes a lot of things. So you trick your brain into thinking you're asleep, and then you, with this therapist, go through the trauma in every in lucid detail, tell her about every single detail of this thing. And then it's obviously clearly overwhelming. So the therapist makes you have a happy place in your brain that you kind of pre-assign and 
retreat to when it gets to be too much. The way my therapist likened it was that, because therapists love metaphors for the brain, the herd metaphor was that the memory of, of finding my little sister had become an errant file in the filing cabinet that is my brain. And it was popping up at inopportune times through nightmares and flashbacks. EMDR's goal is to file it away in an orderly fashion. So it's there to access when you want to access it, but you get it aside when that happens, not it coming up inappropriately. And so that's what we did for, I don't know, like 10, 12 sessions that were as intense as that sounds. Yeah. But it sounds like that was the one thing where and obviously the memory and the experience never goes away, but it it allows you to file it in a way where a lot of the trauma is sort of kind of stripped from it to a certain extent where it's the experience is all there. The loss is there. The feelings are there, but you can breathe through it now. Yeah. It's almost like this because it was painful to go through it but it almost becomes this normalization of the memory. Mm. And so I think that's the rote repetition part. It's just like this happened, this happened, this happened. You're going to process it. It's not going to be this shockingly raw experience every time you recall it or it pops up. Um, and the, the sadness and the existential angst and the wondering about why and the learning about mental illness and forgiving Lydia who didn't do anything but suffer from a disease. You get to that on your own. There's no therapist that's going to just hand you that in 10 sessions, but the raw traumatic memory that was killing me was what we dealt with. Yeah. You Tell me if I have the timeline right here also, because so you're going through this and you're working as much as you can concerned about, you know, like, well, how much do I let my quote public know about this? Because my people don't want me showing up and bringing them down. Like my job is the opposite. Yeah, right. Yeah, You make a decision at some point to say, you know what? I got to write about this. Yeah. And so you, you write up basically a post on your website, publish it. That thing gets goes viral, gets massive attention. Yeah. What what happened in your mind that said it's time for me to not just write this for myself, but actually write something and then make it public? I I think it was that I I had spent the last ten years of my life trying to become a writer, comic, quasi public figure in Denver, certainly a public figure, and then I just the most. For better or for worse, certainly worse, the most profound thing of my life happened to me, and I'm suddenly silent. And it just ate me up. I was the the insufferable artiste inside of me needed to deal with it in some way. And it certainly wasn't going to be stand-up. I didn't have the skill set or the desire, but I just wrote about it. And I cried and sobbed and wrote the whole story out. And, you know, I, like I said, I want, it wasn't enough for me to just write it like a journal entry. I wanted it to be out there. And so I put it out there and, uh, and honestly, that felt great. It felt really good. It was overwhelming because it blew up in a way that yeah. I didn't anticipate. Did you have any sense that that no. was going to happen? And it was so overwhelming that I posted it and I was kind of like, was that a mistake? I'm yeah. scared. And I went on a hike and I left my phone in the car and I came back and I was like, oh, Jesus. But that... That helped me because I think I was tired of people, of wondering if people knew this about me. And I, I felt like I'm up on stage telling jokes and people are like looking at me and they're like, this poor bastard, like he's not talking about what happened. 
And so that's obviously I put that on myself. I don't think anyone, I think most people were like, however, you got to heal, heal, man. But in my head, that's what I was thinking. And so I kind of wanted to put this out there and be like, I, this is me dealing with it. This is me addressing it. But then that just opened the floodgates for me. Yeah. I just wanted to talk about it more and more and more. And I'm still talking about it. Yeah. And, and I mean, that eventually, I, I guess that post really seeds what eventually becomes a book, Tragedy Plus Time, yeah. which really tells the fuller story. Yeah. There's, you said now you talk about it on, on a regular basis. Is it, you know, because there's this whole thing, like, you know, like there, there are things that you just don't talk about on stage because they're not funny. They bring the audience down. Right, um, right. You referenced earlier that original CD, which featured like people from that scene, Rebigli, but also Tik Notaro. Yeah. Who was one of those people where, what was it, five years ago maybe or something yeah, like yeah. that? Tick, famous Tick takes the stage yeah. and starts by saying, I got cancer. And people thought it was fake. Right. Yeah. But she, like that in my mind, I mean, you know this so much better than I do, was this like flag in the sand where it's like, you can stand up there and tell this profoundly real story about suffering and pain and, and hard stuff. And the audience definitely, you can almost feel listening like the audience first, first thinking it was fake, then being like, oh, mm-hmm. this is real. But then coming around and like, and you reference not having the craft yet to be able to, to essentially do what Tig did when she took sure, the stage Tig's to do a master. that. Right. She's a master of this. But but you have sort of like come around to this place now where it's sort of like you're stepping into that same place and sort of saying like, let, let's talk about something real, but also you have a level of craft and perspective on what's happened now where it's like, can you actually bring people along on this journey, which is emotional and hard, but at the same time leaves them in a place which is not like everybody's walking out like, you know, with their heads down. Yeah. Well, um, it feels... De- I'm. I'm nowhere near where Tig is. I, I aspire to be as good as Tig someday, but like, I definitely feel comfortable doing it now. And, but I do it on my terms. I'm not going to a comedy club where you got to buy two drinks and some fried chicken strips to hear my jokes. I, I do it at theaters or alt rooms like Tig did. She wouldn't, yeah. she wouldn't go into the Des Moines funny bone and be like, here we go. It's, it's more proper setting and a little bit of like, I don't know, thoughtful NPR listeners in the audience. But yeah, it's, uh, I think people are open to that experience if you're willing to give it to them honestly. And, you know, for me, it takes a while. I, I need an hour to tell you this story, but I love it. And it's, it's the same reason I wrote that post back in the day, because it's a normalization of my experience that I, am choosing to put out there. It's me kicking open the door saying, this happened. I'm not ashamed of it. You want to hear about it? I'll tell you about it. I think about it all the time. And it happens to so many people. And in telling stuff like this, I, I'm sure Tig's heard the same way. You, you open yourself up, you tell the story, and the floodgates open with people re- dying to tell you their story and thanking you for just normalizing it. Because even in 2020, where we think there's no subjects that are off limits, there's no sad condition we can't talk about and embrace and try to help, we still whisper suicide. We don't know whether to say, she died by suicide, uh, she killed herself, which one's okay? You know, it, we, we, it's very hesitant and it's, people don't like, it is uncomfortable. But then you do the show and you learn like, it's not six degrees, it's one degree, everyone knows someone. So why are we tiptoeing around this? And that I, I didn't, I'm not trying to set out to become some leader in the cause or anything. I just more want to make, 
myself and other people understand that the thing that happened to Lydia is not her fault and it's not my family's fault. And that's been the book and now the show are like a, been a big learning process. I didn't, I didn't write the book because I got to a point where it's like, and now I've gathered my thoughts and I'm ready to share them. I wrote the book to gather my thoughts and those, and that's been what I've gathered is this sort of like, you know, as, as simple as it sounds is that this is a disease like cancer is a disease. So why bang your head against the wall about what you could have done differently or why Lydia would choose to do this because she didn't choose to do any of this. And so that's where I've sort of landed. And it's, there's a still sad, but there's a piece in that for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think it comes full circle to a certain extent also to kind of like the role of comedy and humor in society. Yes. It's to make us laugh. Yes. It's to give us a moment of levity, but underneath all of that, I also wonder if one of like the, the real primary purposes of, of humor is just to make us feel less alone. Yeah. I think that might very much be it. And I think there's a great, you know, in the last 10 years in comedy, uh, push towards representation of all voices. And that's the less alone you're talking about. So, you know, if Hannah Gadsby's getting up there telling her experience, there's some little girl and, and, you know, Tasmania who can relate to that. That's great. If someone who's suffered through mental illness, who's got a family member and here's my stuff, they can relate to that. That's great. That's why we need different viewpoints and perspectives. But I once heard stand-up comedy described as a search to sound like yourself on stage. And I think that's really accurate. That's why you're not there when you start out. And it's why you get better and better and better because you sound more like yourself. And I admire the craft. And when I wasn't talking about Lydia, I felt like I wasn't sounding like myself. And so now when I talk about Lydia, it feels like way more like, uh, like me up there. Yeah. Do you feel like you're all the way there in terms of like you, you sounding like yourself on stage? No, still I, like, I, it, this, it's always going to be like that. Yeah, like, so I think any yeah, good comic yeah. would say they're never there until the day they die. I bet Carlin would be like, oh, I'm so far away from that because he's a good self-loathing comedian. In the second, you're like, I've nailed it. I'm there. <laughs> then you're a terrible comic. Right. It's like the height of arrogance. No, you're wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm cl I'm getting closer all the time, but I think yeah. it's a life it's a lifelong search. You're married. You have a, a little boy now. Also, yeah. do you feel like that that changes your your focus in terms of your perspective on life, your perspective on the work that you do, or or, or how you want to create and what you want to create? I don't know. I said this to my wife. I don't know if this is a good answer to your question, but in terms of just the difference. I felt like with the birth of Malcolm, like a page is turned and it's, that makes me sad. Uh, Cause I feel like it's now a new, you know, Lydia died seven years ago. So I feel like now is the new Epic and I've sort of dealt with it some, and I've reached certain levels of conclusions that certainly can change, but I feel like I've kind of wrapped my head around it somewhat. And now I have a son and it's just, I'm, ha I'm it, it just makes me feel old and it makes me feel really sad that it's been seven years and I still don't have my sister around. And so, yeah, it's, it feels like a shift into a new epic of my life um, that I'm so excited about. But it definitely is the bittersweet of like, feels a little bit of like losing how attached I was to this whole experience of her death and everything. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like when you're first mourning someone, when you have a hour 
of not thinking about them, you feel guilty because you're like, you need to be, if you're truly devastated, you need to be in this the whole time. And now I'm starting to be like, I think I'm more focused on life with my kiddo and, and, and the, what's ahead than what's behind. And I'm happy about that, but it's a bittersweet. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like you're, it, there's this, a door opens to this whole in the world of possibility and joy. And at the same time, there's this sort of like a, a natural second wave of mourning of like, okay, it's circumstances now require me to let this go on a different level. Right. The door, yeah. it does feel like the door's open to the new thing, but Lydia's like staying on this side yeah. of the door. And that's sad. Of course, you know, his, her, his middle name is Lee, which is her nickname. And, you know, I'll teach him about her and he'll read the book and know about her and stuff, but it does feel like leaving behind a little bit. Yeah. So it feels like a good place for us to come full circle too. So sitting here in this container with a good life project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? <laughs> um, to live a good life. Huh. I think to live a good life, you must realize that the, the happiness and the beauty of the world outweighs the sadness. And, it's, and so it's worth it. Thank you. Thank you. And hey, remember, if these conversations have made a difference for you, a great way to say thank you is sharing a quick vote for our Webby Award nomination. Just click the link in the show notes now. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.